Well, good morning. Uh, I'm Joe Blaylock, one of the pastors here at uh, Crossway. And if you're a guest with us today, we just uh, want to welcome you, and uh, we're glad that you're here with us today. And uh, when we do uh, pass the plate later today, we just don't ask that you don't feel obligated to uh, contribute to that. Uh, today's uh, our gift to you. All we do ask is that you'll find in the seat pocket in front of you a, uh, a connection card, and we just ask if you would put your information there so we have a record of your visit and we can get back in touch with you if that's what you desire. We would like to do that. And for everyone here today, there's also on the back side of that a prayer card, and if you have a prayer request that you'd like to share with us, uh, we would love to be able to pray for you. Well, when I think of great men of the Bible that I want to be like, my personal favorite is David. Though he sinned in some terrible ways, he was a warrior, he was a leader, he was passionate about life, and most importantly, he's described as a man after God's own heart. Our text today will illustrate the close relationship that David had with God and highlight his passion for the worship of God. So if you'd please turn with me to Psalm 132. If you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to use one from under the chairs in front of you. And if you are using that Bible, you'll find our text on page 519. If you are using one of those Bibles and you don't have a Bible and you like that one, uh, please feel free to keep it. It's our gift to you. Let's read in Psalm 132. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. May God bless the reading of his word. 
Before we dig into the text, let me give you some context. The chapter is talking about celebrating the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. Some think it may have been sung during the dedication of the temple during the reign of Solomon, David's son. But it would also have continued to be sung by pilgrims as they made their way to Jerusalem to appear before the Lord. It begins by talking about David's oath to God. The details of the story alluded to here are in 2 Samuel. I'll fill you in a bit. There came a point in David's life when he decided that it would be good to return the ark to Zion. Things were still a bit dicey in Canaan, so David and 30,000 chosen men, probably big burly men, went out to bring it home. They traveled to a house of a man named Abinadab, and there they found the ark. This was the awesome, the ark of the covenant of God that led God's army as they defeated Canaan. And this was the ark that would melt their enemies before them if they looked at it. You can imagine how excited they were in getting it back. They were high-fiving each other, chest-bumping, you know, we've got the ark. And amidst all the dancing and music, they put the ark in a cart to carry it home. Now, the cart was driven by Abinadab's two sons. And along the way, when an ox stumbled and the ark started to tip, one of his sons, Uzzah, put out his hand and touched the ark to steady it. And boom! God struck him down dead on the spot for touching the ark. Now, David was a little afraid because of that, and he was angry because his friend Uzzah was dead, and he see, as he sees Uzzah dead next to the cart, and he decides maybe this isn't the time to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. Maybe we should put it in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now, the Bible doesn't say what Obed-Edom had done to make David mad, but it does say that he accepted the ark gladly. And respectfully, and he found that he received blessings in his house because it was there. So after three months go by, King David hears how Obed-Edom is being blessed because the ark is in his house. And he decides maybe it's time to try and bring the ark home again. So they all trek back to Obed-Edom's house, but this time David has learned his lesson. This time he carried the ark in the proper manner, not in a cart, but on the shoulders of the men. And still there was much celebrating and music and dancing. But after the procession moved only six steps, David stopped it and made a sacrifice to atone for his previous mistake and to ask God's blessing on the journey of the ark. So this time they brought the ark into the city of David with David dancing and leaping before it and put it in the tent he had prepared for it. Well, after David had been enjoying peace and quiet for a while, probably meditating on the word of the Lord in his nice house, it dawns on him, hey, I dwell in this house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent and so he gets up and he goes to talk to the prophet Nathan about building a temple. And Nathan at first tells him, hey, that's a great idea. 
Go for it. God's with you. But that night, the word of the Lord comes to Nathan. And basically, Nathan tells David, sorry, David, but you don't get to build the temple. But your son Solomon will. So that's the story that's alluded to in verses 1 through 6. And the psalmist is asking God to remember all of these things. Now, when God is asked to remember, it's asking him to recall some things and do something because of them. Imagine Solomon at the dedication of the temple and all the people pleading, Remember all that David did for you as your king. And arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Arise, O Lord. This is what was said in the time of Moses as the people of the Exodus gathered their things and prepared to start moving. Arise, O Lord, and lead us. Show us the direction. Move and take action. But now the people are asking God something different. They're asking him to fill the temple and bless them and live with them. They're asking God to go to a resting place. No more moving around and living in tents. The promised land was theirs, the temple was built, and now they could all rest. The people's prayers were focused on three particular things. The king, as they said, remember David. The temple, as they said, arise and go to your resting place. And the people, as they asked for righteousness for the priests and joy for the saints. The next verses of the psalm review the terms of the covenant that God made with David. Much of it is the rest of the story that God told David through Nathan when he told him he could not build the temple in 2 Samuel. The thing to notice is that verses 13 through 18 correspond to the things that the people prayed for in the previous verses. And in each case, God's answers go far beyond what is asked for by the people, more than we could ask for. God answers each of their prayers by blessing them on three different levels. Blessings for Israel, then we'll see blessings for us, and blessings for eternity. So let's take a look at how God responded. The first we'll look at is God's response to prayers for the king. God's response to prayers for the king. The people had prayed, remember David. Remember all the trials he went through when he was persecuted by Saul. Remember his faith in facing Goliath. Remember his fierceness as a warrior. And remember how much he gave in order to build the temple. The psalmist reminds us of God's response in verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on the throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. God promised that not only would he bless them in remembrance of David, 
but he would keep the line of David on the throne of Israel forever, as long as they obeyed God. But to go even further, he says that he will teach them his testimonies himself. What a commitment God makes to David and the people. If they will just sit at his feet, God will make them sit on a throne. If they will but keep the covenant, they will keep the crown. Sadly, as we know from the Bible, the earthly throne of David did not last forever. The kings did not always keep the covenant. The kingdom was split in two parts and eventually it collapsed under the weight of its own sin as the last king of Judah was drug off into exile. The application for us today is our need for family faithfulness. In a home family, the parents are in a headship position and are responsible for making sure their children know and fear the Lord. And in return, he promises to draw near to us even as we are faithful to him. In church families, the church leaders have the same responsibilities for those who are members. And in both cases, leaders of home families and leaders of church families must pray to the Lord that he himself would teach them the truth through the Holy Spirit. To look at the eternal application of the blessing of the king, let's look at some more of the text from 2 Samuel. These are the words God gave to David through Nathan the prophet. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father, I will raise up your, your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. These verses obviously refer to Solomon, David's son, his successor as king, and the builder of the temple. But we also see Peter in Acts directly applying these verses to Christ as the seed of David. Even as the angel was telling Mary that she would soon conceive a child, listen how her child is described in Luke. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The Bible makes no mistake in identifying Christ in the line of David. And he is the eternal fulfillment of this promise of God. Christ sits on the eternal throne. He was disciplined by the rod of men, and he bore the stripes of the sons of men, but he perfectly and faithfully kept God's covenant, and as promised, he will reign forever. The second response that we'll look at is God's response to prayers for the temple. God's response to prayers for the temple. 
The people had prayed, Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. The ark had been perpetually on the move throughout its history with no fit permanent place for it. Now, after seven years of hard labor, after spending unaccountable amounts of wealth and actually having to give 20 cities of Galilee in payment for the cedar used to build it, the people prayed to God that he would come and consecrate the temple with his presence. The psalmist tells us of the Lord's response in verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Zion was just another Canaanite town. Nothing special. It wasn't a city of industry or fancy topography or any such thing. It had nothing to merit this choice. But it had now become special forever because it was chosen by God. It will now be the center of his dwelling. After decades of roaming around, he will now permanently dwell amongst his people. He has made it his resting place forever. Think of the implications of that. The last time we heard of God resting was after he had created everything. This is a significant event. And just as significant is the application for us. Like Zion, we have nothing to bring which merits God's gifts to us. We are sinners in rebellion. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, they weren't just disobeying God's command. They were rejecting his authority over them as their king. And so they suffered spiritual death. We are now created in this same death and are enemies of God destined for eternal damnation. Ephesians tells us we are dead. We are children of wrath. But praise the Lord. Just as Zion was chosen by God, and then he chose to indwell the temple, so it is with us. Through no merit of our own, when we are incapable of any life with God, he chooses us, he elects us, and puts our name in the book of life. Our indwelling by the Holy Spirit follows our election and comes because of it. As verse 14 says, simply because God desired it. Solomon's temple was utterly destroyed some 400 years later by the Babylonians. Today, a Muslim mosque stands in the place where it is thought to have been built. The ark is lost. It's whereabouts unknown to man. But Paul tells us that the temple still exists. It exists in you and me as Christians. When Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to live lives worthy of God, he asks them, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. 
For you, with a, you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. But even these earthly bodies that we have one day will be overcome by death. But the eternal application of the temple is that now there is a heavenly temple that John tells us about in the book of Revelation. But ultimately, eternally, there will be no temple. One day, Jesus will return to this world and all that is in it will be destroyed. John tells us in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, the God Almighty, and the Lamb. Jesus is the cornerstone and the foundation of the eternal temple. And we, as living stones, will be built together with him to form the temple of God through the Holy Spirit. The final response we'll look at is God's response to prayers for the people. God's response to prayers for the people. The people had prayed in verse 9, Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The priests were the people's representatives before God. Only they could enter into his presence. So the people were asking that the priests would be found worthy so that God would hear their prayers and grant their requests. They were also asking that God would continue to favor their king. The psalmist tells us of the Lord's response in verse 15. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. God tells them he will abundantly bless them, more than they asked for. God's holy presence is among them, so how could it be otherwise? The poor will have all their needs met. The priests will not just be clothed with righteousness, but with the whole blessing from God, with salvation. But like the king, the nation of Israel as a theocracy is no more. As the people spiraled down into sin, God allowed them to be conquered and brought into exile as punishment. Today, we are the people of God. We have inherited these promises. Matthew tells us in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted. Blessed are you. Make no mistake. God is not a gumball machine where we put in our good works quarter and he spits out a gumball blessing. He does not work that way. But he does have a plan for our lives and he does promise that it's good. Sometimes some of these things that we read about in Matthew don't necessarily sound good. But he does have a plan and God promises that those things are good for us. In this world, that doesn't mean easy. That doesn't mean painless. It doesn't mean that we will understand it all. But in the big picture of God's economy, it is good. James tells us, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. But in the eternal application, God's plan does mean all of those good things. Listen to what else John tells us in Revelation. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. No more pain of a child with birth defects. No more pain of war and separation. No more pain of abuse or the loss of a job or unexpected illness. No more. No more. Only an eternity spent worshiping in the presence of God. But there was one more promise from God. He spoke of a horn to sprout for David, a lamp for his anointed, whose enemies would be clothed with shame and whose crown would shine. The people of Israel couldn't have completely understood these verses. But we know that the promise described here today is Christ Jesus himself. He is Luke's horn of salvation. He is the lamp that will illuminate the new Jerusalem so that it won't need the sun and the moon for light, but it will be filled with his brightness. And one day... At the sound of a trumpet, when the world isn't expecting it, he will return for his beloved people. Friends, I pray today that you are one of his beloved. Because if you're not, there are other eternal realities that are in store for you, and the Bible promises that they are not good. If you're not sure about that, or if you have questions about that, Pastor John and I will be around uh, after the sermon today to chat with you. Let's pray. Father, just pray that if there are those among us that don't know you as their Lord and Savior, that 
the word that we heard today would speak to their hearts and that, Lord, they would choose to become one of your beloved and that you would enable that choice today, Lord. We just thank you for these blessings that you have promised us in our day and the eternal blessings that you've promised us through Christ. And, Lord, we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.